Okay, okay. Uh, if you're looking for the prayer time for the 5 o'clock service, I think I'm a little loud. Um, I don't know. Hit it on the fly. Uh, that's in the chapel right now. So if you'd like to go to the 5 o'clock service, the, it's starting, the service starting. There's a prayer time tonight for that. The service won't begin until probably January. But there's a prayer time tonight for that. So if you're supposed to be there, that's okay. You can stand up and it'll only hurt my feelings a little bit. Um, I've been asked by every table so far, what about next week? Uh, next week, no class, we're going to all take a field trip over to the sanctuary and listen to Tom Doyle. Uh, that will not be recorded or streamed. It's, it'll be live in there. And so West Campus, South Campus, and Fort Worth Campus, first come, first serve uh, for the sanctuary. So that's what will happen next week. When the 5 o'clock service starts, let's just say January, we are going to continue at 5 o'clock. So if you want to go to the 5 o'clock service, that's fine. You can catch the YouTube. Uh, but we will continue at 5 o'clock and not move where we used to be, which was 6.30. We'd, we'd go to worship from 5 to 6, and then we'd start class at 6.30, and we wouldn't be done until about 9. At least that's what everybody told me it felt like. So we're going to stay at 5 o'clock when the 5 o'clock service starts. So I apologize if that makes you have to choose, uh, but it's, I think it's just better. What? <laughs> Too bad. Gosh, that's such a mean way of putting it. Uh, okay, anything else, honey? Okay, so next week, what are we doing? Field trip. Field trip. And we will send you probably a daily reminder by email. <laughs> and don't skip the field trip. Yeah, it should be good. should be good. Uh, okay, I think that's all I've got. I think. Oh. Huh. Okay. All right, let me pray for us, and we'll get started tonight. Well, Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that it tells us the truth about you. It tells us the truth about ourselves. Um, you are kind and generous uh, to us as you um, remind us and warn us of uh, the pitfalls and falling um, into the ditches. Uh, but thank you for your forgiveness and for your grace. 
Uh, we love you and we thank you for your word and for your spirit and pray that they would, uh, your spirit would be here tonight and uh, lead us and guide us through this material, please. And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may remember um, a fella, he was a pitcher, named Oral Hershiser. So Oral Hershiser uh, said, there are two theories of pitching. I thought this was appropriate, right? I think the, somebody plays the game tonight. I don't know. I think it's game one, which we're not going to talk about, but I know someone's playing. So Earl Hershiser says there are two theories of pitch, because whoever has the best pitcher is going to win. That's what I'm telling you. There are two theories of pitching, Hershiser says. One is that you try to convince the batter that a particular pitch is coming and you throw something different. So like in your windup, you look like you're going to throw a fastball, but somehow you're able to make it into a curveball, so you're able to fool them. He says the other theory that you don't hear as much about that I use is that if the batter expects a particular pitch, you throw it, but you throw it in a place where he can't hit it. That is, know what a batter wants or expects and throw the ball almost there. So if I tend to have a, you know, if I had a tendency to like an inside pitch, then Oral would know if he gives me an inside pitch, I can't resist it. But he's going to put it just far enough inside that if I really do connect with it, it won't be a good hit. So he's smart enough to know what it is I will chase. And he'll throw it in just the right place where I can't quite get what I'm looking for. I get what I expect, but it's not what I expected. If you had a chance to read these two chapters, the evil one threw David a pitch, and he knew just where he liked it, and he threw it just a little bit too far inside so that David got what he wasn't expecting. But he knew what he was going after. That's the story of David tonight. We're in 2 Samuel. We're still talking about the monarchy. We're going to look at chapters 11 and 12. It's a story you've heard many times. David and Bathsheba. It's a story of amazing sin and amazing grace. It reminds and warns us of the blinding, ensnaring, and entangling deceitfulness of sin. And I want us tonight to approach it appropriately. 
And what I mean by that is we're looking at another believer's sins. And if these were yours that were written for the entire world for millennia to review and analyze and preach on, um, I think you would want it done with a level of decorum. So we have to be reminded, we're looking at another believer's sins. We're not going to look at David self-righteously. We're not going to look at him self-confidently. But we're going to look at this story with a great deal of sober-mindedness. I hope you know what I mean by that. Here's the bottom line for tonight. You'll never come out of sin with what you go into sin to find. You'll never come out of sin with what you go into sin to find. The stage for our little drama tonight uh, is the city of David, and so it's the close-in buildings. When you go to Israel, maybe not right now, continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and then you can go. But it's inside these higher walls, the city of David. And they, so scholars who have put this together, think that David's palace is the one on the right, the one with the arch. Now, does it look exactly like that? Probably not. And the royal guard is the building on the left. That's where Uriah would have been. And so, when David takes a little walk, he's looking right over here, which is not very far away, and he's got a little bit of a, it's, it's unobstructed, <laughs> pretty easily, easy to see. So Uriah would have been his next door neighbor. This story begins with temptation. If you'll turn to chapter 21, 2 Samuel 21, and we're going to start reading in verse 15. I'm going to give you the context for chapter 11, verse 1. So the context for that is 2 Samuel 21, beginning in 15. Once again, the Philistines were at war with Israel, and we've been watching that over the past number of weeks, how Israel continues to battle the Philistines. And when David and his men were in the thick of battle, David became weak and exhausted. Ishbi Benob was a descendant of the giants. His bronze spearhead weighed more than seven pounds, and he was armed with a new sword. He had cornered David and was about to kill him. But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue and killed the Philistine. 
Then David's men declared, you are not going out to battle with us again. Why risk snuffing out the light of Israel? David gets into a battle, he gets tired, and he almost dies. And everyone says, you know what, this is no longer a good idea for a warrior to be a warrior. You're the king, and you should stay home. Chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Where is David? He's not there. He stayed home. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and as he was walking on the roof of the and he was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Why is that important? Because of the last verse in this little paragraph. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, it can't be anybody else's, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. David's idleness what does David know how to do? Fight. He's a warrior. But he's where he shouldn't be at a time he shouldn't be there. It's the spring of the year. He should have been off to war. He's not. So he takes a little snooze, gets up, and decides to wander around the roof. So he's where he shouldn't be at a time he shouldn't be there. David was vulnerable. The warrior had laid down his armor. He might have been bored, but he was most definitely alone. And so his look toward Bathsheba lingered. This drama begins with temptation. Temptation led to imagination. David's imagination began to indulge in and ruminate on the sight in front of him. And in spite of the facts that if he acts out his sin, he will betray Uriah, who is one of his mighty men. Chapter 23, turn over to chapter 23, verse 39. Uriah the Hittite is in the list of David's mighty men. This would have been a close 
trusted acquaintance for David. Not only will he violate Uriah, but Ahithophel has a granddaughter. Her name is Bathsheba. His key counselor's granddaughter is Bathsheba. And we find that out from verse 34, because we know that she is the daughter of Eliam, son of Ahithophel, and back over here uh, in chapter 11, uh, verse 3, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. One of his closest friends and one of his key counselor's granddaughter. But as we've discussed before, he doesn't want to think about God right now. He just wants to be happy. So temptation leads to imagination, which leads him to surrender. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came. So David moves from imagination to action. He chooses to surrender his will to sin. He summons Bathsheba to the palace, and he commits adultery with probably one of his good friends and most loyal soldier's wife. And then they go on about their business. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Once sin gets moving, it becomes extremely difficult to stop. Once David surrendered to this temptation, to this sin, he only had one choice left, and that's cover his tracks. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home... He summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. 
and Joab and my master's men are, are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him over to dinner and got him drunk. But even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Bathsheba learns she's pregnant. David, now entangled in sin's web, schemes to keep his sin hidden. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, Report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him, Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. David begins trying to cover his tracks. And when drink won't work, he orders the execution of a better man. He broke the Tenth Commandment to not covet. He broke the Seventh Commandment, don't commit adultery. He broke Commandment 8 and 9, don't steal and don't bear false witness. And he broke Commandment 6, don't murder. And Uriah carried his own execution papers to Joab, never once opening them or reading them. 
But one person in this story is not blind to what David is doing, and that's God. And God begins revealing to David that he knows. Chapter 12, verse 1, so the Lord sent Nathan, Nathan the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Verse 5, David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes. and He will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. David has persisted in hiding his sin for probably six months. Could be a little bit longer. Charles Spurgeon, famous, famous uh, preacher from the late 1800s in London, said, God will not let his children sin successfully. And so God exposes David's secret sins through Nathan's story. And Nathan says, you are the man. Now that it's been revealed, all that's left is the pronouncement of sentence and consequences. And so God gave David the reasons for the sentence that he was about to receive. And that was twofold. David's forgetfulness of God's goodness and David despised God's word or maybe even thought he was above the law. And then David, out of his own mouth, 
unknowingly declares his own punishment. There would be a fourfold restitution of death in David's household by the sword. First would be the baby who was just born. Then there would be Amnon killed by Absalom. Then there would be Absalom killed by Joab. And then there would be Adonijah killed by Beniah. David pronounced his own consequences. Four lambs for the one that was stolen. Verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you've shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. Remember how she's addressed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1? The wife of Uriah. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. Uh Uh-oh, that's trouble. Why? Because a child was circumcised, a child of the covenant, on the eighth day. This child was not circumcised into the covenant. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when the child when he is dead. Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord as the Lord had commanded. The sword, beginning with this child, 
never left David's house. And yet the Lord forgave him. David confesses his sin. If you want to see more of his full confession, that's Psalm 51. This is the context for Psalm 51. God forgives him. But consequences are irreversible. The first consequence is the child died. Please notice, David is comforted. David is not resigned. He is comforted. He will see the child again. And God blesses them with another child named Jedidiah. This child, beloved of the Lord. God, in spite of this, is keeping his promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel 7, that he would always have someone on the throne. He's putting their past behind and looking ahead. Once the Lord forgives, he restores him to active duty, so to speak. Meanwhile, Joab was fighting against Rabbah, the capital of Ammon, and he captured the royal fortifications. Joab sent messengers to tell David, I have fought against Rabbah and, ca and captured its water supply. Now bring the rest of the army and capture the city. Otherwise, I will capture it and get credit for the victory. So David gathered the rest of the army and went to Rabbah, and he fought against it and captured it. David removed the crown from the king's head, and it was placed on his own head. The, the crown was made of gold and set with gems, and it weighed 75 pounds. I don't even know if I can pick up 75 pounds. Can you imagine putting a 75-pound anything on your head? David took a vast amount of plunder from the city. He also made slaves of the people of Rabbah and forced them to labor with saws, iron picks, and iron axes, and to work in the brick kilns. That is how he dealt with the people of all the Ammonite towns. Then David and all the army returned to Jerusalem. David was put back to work where he was supposed to be in the first place. God restored him. Why? Because there's still kingdom work for David to do. And God is ready and willing to use David again in spite of his sins. And he gives him and the nation further victory over their enemies. In the New Testament, we would say God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The consequences for David's household will remain, but God is using David again for his work. Principle, you'll never come out of sin with what you go into sin to find. 
do some quick applications. Are you making yourself vulnerable? And now I want you to expand this beyond just the one sin that we've spent the past half hour looking at with David. I want you to ask yourself about other places, other kinds of sins that you may be making yourself vulnerable to. I don't want you to say it out loud. I want you to think of one that you are struggling with. Most people I talk to, the temptation becomes far worse when they're idle. We become more vulnerable when we're idle. And we definitely become more vulnerable when we are alone and without armor. Who threw the pitch to David? the same one who's throwing the pitches at you. He knows just what you're looking for, but he's going to throw it just a little bit differently so that while you think you're going to get what you expect, you're going to get what you don't expect. He's going to cause you to chase that pitch every day because he knows what you want to chase. Where might you be toying with sin rather than remembering James 1, 14 to 15? James chapter 1, 14 and 15. This is what James says. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. There's a whole process, a downward spiral. It begins with temptation, goes to imagination. You begin to think about Andrew, am I off? Okay. James 1, 14 and 15 remind us it doesn't just happen. There's a downward spiral that accompanies this. What are we to do? Perhaps remember Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Have you ever been victorious against sin? No. Will you this time, when you're getting those pitches, no, you won't be. What do you have to do? Throw yourself on the Lord and say, Daddy, I have no strength to fight this. I cannot be victorious over this. Please intervene. Please help me. He will take care of it. Are you the man or woman in need of confessing some sin? or sinful pattern to God. If you'll read Psalm 51, uh, David struggled under his sin. 
I've met a lot of people in the same situation. They struggle, and what they need to do is confess. They need to confess it first and foremost to God, but they need to confess it. If you've dealt with God regarding your sin, then he's ready and willing to use you again in spite of your sin because there's still kingdom work to be done that he's given to you to do. So if you've dealt with God regarding your sin, he's ready and willing to use you again. You don't have to answer this question, but do you believe that? And are you ready? Is God's ready to use you and to redeploy you? Once you get right with him again. For next time, read 2 Samuel 13 and 14, which is not next week. Two weeks. 2 Samuel 13 and 14, unfortunately, we're going to see more evidence of the sword that is not leaving David's household. That's what uh, 2 Samuel 13 and 14, we begin to see other evidences of the consequences from David's sins. Well, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your great love for Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Not just the, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, the, the, the geopolitical entity called Israel right now. We don't just pray for her peace and protection, but we do. But we pray that she would see your son, our Lord Jesus, as their Messiah. And they would have peace of soul not just peace of circumstances. I don't know what your intentions are with what's going on over there, but I pray that you would use this to bring many, many, many in Israel to true faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do that, please? Bring in the peace of Jerusalem and the peace of of those people's hearts. They've never known such peace and such freedom. Would you do that for them, please? We know you love them. We know you will. We know you're at work. But we unite our hearts and minds and voices together and ask for the peace of Jerusalem and the reception of their Messiah, who we know to be the Lord Jesus. Would you do that, please? We pray for it this evening with a strong reminder and warning from this lesson that sins are not to be trifled with. Help us, please, in Jesus' name, amen.